You're listening to On the Record Online with Eric Schwartzman, where reporters and journalists go on the record about how they use the Internet to cover the news. For the latest trends, tips, and tactics on how the web shapes popular opinion, subscribe to our RSS news feed or visit us online at www.ipressroom.com. Business Week Computers Department Editor and author of the book Creative Capital, Spencer Ante goes on the record online. If you don't have a brand name, if you don't have a reputation, um, you know, people are not going to pay attention to you or they're going to pay less attention to you. So the importance of communications and PR in the startup world is, is, is paramount. And thank you for pulling down this episode of On the Record Online. I am glad to be back in the U.S. I was in Singapore, where I did the New Media PR Boot Camp for the uh, Ministry of Information. Michael Netsley, if you're listening, um, I was in and out three days, two nights, believe it or not. I actually got off the plane, taught that day. Um, So I was back-to-back, and I feel badly that I didn't reach out to you. But I have been listening to your spots on 4Media Release, and I've been enjoying them very much. And hopefully next time if I get out to Singapore, we will get a chance to have a little black pepper crab. Um, Today we have a one-on-one interview with Spencer uh, Ante. He is the computers department editor at Business Week. He's also the author of the book um, Creative Capital, just came out, published by Harvard Press. And it is about the birth of venture capital in the U.S. And it's chalking up good reviews. Uh, he is also going to be delivering the strategic recap at the PRSA Digital Impact Conference, which is in New York City, June 9th and 10th, 2008. Um, looking forward to meeting him there for the first time. And uh, we are going to have keynotes at that conference from Josh Burnoff, author, uh, or the co-author, I should say, with Charlene Lee of Groundswell. Um, and uh, we're also going to have David Carr, the Monday business media business columnist at the New York Times, uh, both of them accepted my invitation to keynote. I'm thrilled about that and thrilled to see them both there. Um, and if you'd like to attend that or one of the upcoming New Media PR boot camps, uh, you can get information on that at www.speaknewmedia.com. Uh, and now, uh, without any further introduction, I am going to play for you the interview with uh, Spencer Ante. Lasts around 20 minutes and it comes to you entirely unedited after this. Don't be left behind. Get the latest online PR tools and services from iPressroom. Powerful, easy to use, available on demand. Extend your sphere of influence online with iPressroom. Tools for online media centers, virtual private press rooms, RSS news feeds, podcasts, and more at www.ipressroom.com. iPressroom, always on, even when you're off. Spencer Ante, thank you so much for joining us. Good to be here. Now, you've been uh, at Business Week for some time now. Before that, you were at thestreet.com. Uh, yeah, I'm, I've been at Business Week for about eight years. And, and you worked at Wired as well? Yeah, I was a contributing writer at uh, Wired News in the late 90s uh, during the boom when I was living in San Francisco, and I was also a contributing writer at Business 2.0 uh, before I was acquired by um, Time, Inc. What brought you to San Francisco? I came to the Bay Area because I um, went back to graduate school, and I enrolled in the uh, Graduate School of Journalism at Cal Berkeley, 
1993, and I graduated in 1995, and I was lucky that the Internet browser was uh, created in 1994 in the summer, and I remember specifically um, downloading Mosaic for the first time on a computer at Berkeley and thinking, wow, this is the future. Interesting, as do I. I was at San Francisco State. A uh, little, little bit after that. Oh and yeah. I, and I remember, you know, uh, actually, <clears throat> I got into a car accident and I, I was rear-ended. I wasn't seriously injured, but I got three thousand dollars in settlement money, uh-huh. and I could either buy a car or a computer, and I bought a computer. <laughs> and uh, you know, that was a, a Mac classic, and, and oh, getting yeah. it on the internet was a six-month ordeal. Yeah, I think you made the right choice. <laughs> So tell, tell us, give us a day in the life as the computers department editor at Business Week. Day in the life, okay. Well, um, really, it, it's depending on what day it is, it could be very different. But you know, a typical day would be um, coming in. Uh, I'll, I'll give you a classic story. Coming in on a Thursday morning this week, or yesterday Wednesday morning, and um, Verizon uh, announced its intention to acquire Altel. So I had to clear the decks and uh, basically put aside the two other big stories I was working on and crank out a online breaking news sort of analytical piece on the, uh, you know, the, the, the mega merger of the day. Um, that happens, you know, every so often here. But if there's no breaking news, uh, we're a lot of time we spend, you know, doing reporting and research, talking to folks about, you know, whatever story we're working on. Um, you know, occasionally we'll, you know, if we're lucky, we get out, get out of the office and take a trip. And, and get some on the ground, you know, color and, and reporting, and um, you know, and then there's a lot of meetings. We have weekly, uh, weekly editorial meetings. We have cover story meetings. We have, um, you know, just our our tech pod meeting, and there's a lot of collaboration. There's a lot of uh, interaction um, amongst the staff, and so that makes it a nice place to work. So now you have a new book out, Creative Capital. Um, it was just published by Harvard Press. That's correct. Uh, in April '08. Tell us about the book. Well, the book is a biography of the gentleman named George Dorio, who's a French immigrant who came to America in 1921 and, and uh, ended up pioneering the uh, venture capital industry in the U.S. and also sort of by doing so sparking the creation of our sort of you know, high-tech startup nation. And I try to tell the larger story of the birth of our entrepreneurial economy through Dorio, since I argue he was probably the key player and leader and visionary for um, you know, coming up with uh, the ideas and the concepts and also in, in executing on them and creating financing over 100 businesses um, from his venture capital firm in Boston, which was called American Research and Development, which was founded in 1946. And the book is, um, is doing really well. It's been reviewed in uh, the Financial Times, Forbes, a couple weeks ago, the Wall Street Journal gave it a nice review, and then just last week, I was thrilled to see that the New York Times business section reviewed it. So I'm really happy that one of my goals of the project was to revive George Doriel's reputation, and it seems like I'm accomplishing that, so that makes me feel good. What's going on in the venture capital world today? How is the economy affecting uh, venture capital's willingness to underwrite technology businesses? Venture capital world today is is doing uh, fairly well. It's actually doing it's in a much better shape than the overall economy. As you know, uh, there's a lot of uncertainty in the overall economy. They, you know, many economists would say we're in a recession. 
the credit crunch continues to um, uh, you know sort of play out and, 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 and wreak a lot of havoc and damage uh, in the financial services sector. But within venture capital, uh, there's an enormous amount of money still being raised. There's an enormous amount of money still being invested. And you know, if you look at the uh, the startup world, there's still a lot of excitement and energy and innovation going on. Um, the you know Google, I think, is an inspiration for this most recent generation of entrepreneurs. And and we see companies like Facebook, which has received a lot of venture capital funding. And then the whole Web 2.0 movement is, is largely a venture capital finance uh, uh, phenomenon. So I think. In general, things are going well, but you know there's some challenges. I think one of the big challenges now is that there's so much money being raised. The, the fund sizes, of, you know, when, when American Research and Development created its first venture capital fund in 1946, you want to take a guess how much money they raised? No. Okay, three and a half million dollars. <laughs> okay, and the venture capital funds being raised today are 500, 700, 800, a billion dollars. So that creates a whole different environment. I mean, you can't really afford to do these little million here, million there deals because it's, it's just not an efficient use of your time. And so the venture capitalists are almost being forced into taking bigger bets. And, um, and, and the returns, we don't know what, you know, it's too early to say what the returns are going to be. You know, the, the whole clean tech phenomenon is a different, it's a different challenge. All these energy company startups, um, they take a lot more money and they take a lot more time to nurture and build, and so, you know, that's going to be another uh, big challenge for the engineers to see how they can um, adapt to that. Your experience as a journalist covering not just big companies, but also taking a look at the VC world and Web 2.0 and and uh, big money getting behind, uh, you know, ideas with potential but no revenue, uh, give us a little bit of, of, of insight in your experience working with PR people uh, launching these new ventures. Um, you know, do you see a PR people getting better, and 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 doing a better job helping you um, get the information you need to potentially consider whether or not these things are worth writing about, or do you see it getting worse, or or are there any generalizations at all you could make? Um, it's hard to generalize and say if the PR people are getting better or worse, but I will say that the importance of public relations and communications is, is greater than ever, and I think that. Uh, definitely applies uh, to the startups, and probably even more so because if you don't have a brand name, if you don't have a reputation, um, you know, people are not going to pay attention to you, or they're going to pay less attention to you. So the importance of communications and PR in the startup world is, is, is paramount. And so, um, you know, if I was a startup, I would definitely, um, you know, I mean, obviously, you got to focus on your product development and, and, and who your customers are and, and building product, but at a certain point, you want to get your story out there, and you know what? It helps to have someone who knows how to tell a story, and and I think that's a big uh, uh, challenge for a lot of these young companies, is to come up with a story that will resonate with the public. And so, that's why you see some of the most successful Web 2.0 companies have actually used public relations professionals, such as Facebook, and uh, look at Slide. Slide's got an Incredible amount of attention. They're a startup, um, you know, but they they use they use public relations professionals as well, and and so um, I would say you know you got to you got to pay a lot of attention to it. 
there um, uh, was a uh, post uh, written to TechCrunch a couple weeks back by Brian Solis, who's a, a PR person in the Bay Area. And uh, it was, uh, you know, the secrets you need to know if you're a startup to launch your business. And there was a response posted by Louis Lemure, who's the CEO of a company called Seismic, which is in the Web 2.0 company, saying, you know, BS, you don't need any PR at all. All you need is the ability to uh, build and participate in communities. That's the way to get your word out. Yeah. Uh, what's your thought on that? I think he's that he makes a good point, which is that the nature of public relations and communications is definitely changing because of the Internet. And with the, the rise of the Internet, you definitely have the opportunity to go directly to uh, the, the, the public. You have the opportunity to speak directly to uh, your users, to your business partners, to your customers, to anyone who's interested in what you're doing. And so, you know, in, to that extent, um, public relations is going to play a lesser role. But you still need someone who understands that ecosystem, you know, and you need someone who's going to be able to explain to you how to operate in that ecosystem. And moreover, you know, the old media, the print media, which I work in uh, partially, I'm actually an editor on the, the, the magazine side, you know, in order to sort of break through to those premium uh, publications and premium print brands, you, you actually, it helps to have someone in public, re- public relations. So I would say that um, you need to develop both skill sets. You need to develop, you know, traditional PR skills, you also need to develop the new media uh, PR skills of, you know, when do I blog? When not do I blog? How do I use my Facebook page? Um, should I use Twitter? Should I not use Twitter? If I do use Twitter, how should I use it? So there's all these new things that are popping up, and I think Luik is right that you, you need to be thinking about, thinking about that a lot and actually doing things and experimenting. But it doesn't mean you can afford to ignore uh, the traditional so you're at a you're at a traditional magazine, but uh, you guys are very aggressive in the use of new media on your website. You've got podcasts, you've got blogs. Um, so, to what extent are you thinking about uh, your audience from from how how adept they are at, at the use and consumption of digital media? I mean, are you guys creating content for for digital immigrants or for digital natives? You know, that's a good question. The audience of the website is very different than the audience of the magazine. So when we're conceiving story ideas, we definitely spend a good amount of time trying to figure out <clears throat> what is the right home for this story, right? So if it's more of a technology-oriented story, you know, I think a lot of the readers on the website are much more tech-savvy than the readers in the magazine. The readers in the magazine tend to be older. They tend to be uh, more in the sort of managerial class. And, uh, and so they're probably less conversant with technology. Um, whereas online, you know, your people, you know, they're, they're doing the Internet, they're doing the email, they're doing all the new social media tools, and um, different stories play better online. So we, we definitely spend a lot of time thinking about that. And we also try to um, come up with um, new approaches, you know, and, and new techniques for engaging the audience online. I mean, that's really important right now. We just started doing this thing where we... Uh, we actually publish the comments of readers on our homepage in a very prominent way with our picture, because we feel that that engages the reader more. If they have an opportunity to like um, uh, get some publicity and get some sort of reputational awareness about who they are and what they're thinking, then I think it encourages people to become more part of the community. And you know, another example would be I came up with this idea for doing an uh, online uh, video show. It was a, it's 
called the Digital Dish, where it's kind of like meet, it's meet the press for the technology community. So we're doing a weekly online video show with uh, a roundtable of Business Week journalists. And, you know, we just came up with that idea, put it together over a month or two, and then, and then we just started doing it early this year. And now we're, like, been doing it for six months, and it's getting a lot of um, good feedback. And, uh, you know, as journalists these days, you just business as usual doesn't work. I mean, that's the bottom line. You, you have to really um, be innovative, and you have to think about the technology and how you can take advantage of it. There's a lot of discussion now about data portability, the idea that if you create um, content in some sort of a social network and you want to vacate, you should be able to take that with you. And if you don't have that option, perhaps you shouldn't invest too much time or energy into a social network with, that doesn't give you that ability. Um, what's your position on that? Because from a business standpoint, certainly it doesn't make sense for the social network to make it easy for you to leave, yet uh, certainly that's what users want. Um, so do you think data migration is going to become something that's ubiquitous and available in all networks, or do you think that uh, the networks are going to resist that option? I think that I think the jury's still out on the importance of data portability, honestly, because um, there's a network effect. The network effect says that the more people that are attached to a network, the more valuable it is. And so that's why Facebook has become a very valuable network because there's, you know, 100 million people on it, and you know what? A lot of your friends are on it now. And so there's a certain point of diminishing returns for how many networks you can be part of, right? You can't, how many, I mean, how many social networks can you be a member of? I'm, I'm, I think only maybe two or three at the max, you know? So on the other hand, there is some convenience factor that is attached to having portability of data. And, and so you see things like Flock, this new web browser which aggregates you know, your Facebook account, your Twitter account, with you know, some other like Web 2.0 tools. And I think there's some value in that, but um, I'm just not sure how much value there is because even though I kind of think Flock is cool and I've been using it, I haven't, it hasn't become a, an everyday part of my life, whereas like Facebook has. And so, as you said, there's a reluctance among the big successful networks to, to truly open up because that means they're going to be giving away the farm. They're going to be giving away all the you know sort of proprietary internal data that they have. So I think it'll probably fall somewhere in the middle where the networks realize that they can't be completely closed, that there is a value to being open, but there's a limit to openness. And so I think that's what everyone's wrestling with now is like how much how much do we want to be open, how much do we want to be closed, and we'll see what happens. But I think um, for, for my money, I, I do think that people like to be able to go to one place or two places, and they don't want to go to a million places. You know, we just don't have enough time in the day. As a journalist who's been, you know, focused on this space for a significant amount of time, really, you know, since since the beginning for the most part, what surprises you most about uh, about what's happened, about where where we appear to be going? I think what surprises me the most is the resiliency of the high-tech economy. I mean, you think about what we've been through in the last 15 years. You know, we, uh, we had the, uh, the, techno the tech bust, the dot-com bust and boom, the telecom bust and boom, and then we had um, September 11th. Um, and, and now we're going through another uh, you know, financial crisis with the credit crunch. And yet, you know, the, the, the technology economy continues to chug along. Innovation continues to happen. And that's one of the things I sort of learned while researching my book is that, you know, these things really do work in cycles, you know, and you can never keep the technology economy down for too long because 
it's really one of the only things that has been constant is the continuing change in technology. You know, if you look at look at the history of of of, of, the, of our economy, and it's like, well, what's changed? It's like technology is constantly changing. You know, going back to you know we had the telegraph, we had the railroads, we had you know air travel. I mean, and on and on and on and on. And, and it's just it's amazing how resilient um, the the sort of creative spirit is. And I think that's what also gives me a lot of optimism and hope that even though you're you know we're in tough times in a lot of ways that there's always something amazing that's probably lying around the corner that's going to rock your world. And I think that's what keeps me um, excited and interested in, in covering, continuing to cover the story. Final question, Spencer. Looking forward uh, at, at where we, at, at where we <clears throat> might be headed, who's going to win, who's going to lose, you've got Google versus Microsoft or cloud computing versus desktop computing. Um, wh- where, what do you think... Uh, Where's your money on? Is is your money on desktop computing or cloud computing? I, I'll, I'll put my money on Google. <laughs> um, one of the things that you also learn by studying the history of technology is that one technology rarely, if ever, rarely if ever replaces another technology. It's it, what happens is that it's just sort of a gradual. It's more of a gradual shift. So, for example, the mainframe. You know, the PC didn't kill the mainframe. Right, the mainframe still exists. Is it a growth? Is it a growth industry? No, it's just kind of chugs along. Um, is the internet going to kill the PC? No. In fact, you could say that the internet has given great life to the PC because most people, you know, connect to the internet through their computer. And and now we have the the cloud computing phenomenon, um, which I guess poses the concept of a lot of your Computing will be done, you know, in the cloud, in, 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 the, in the network, and you're still going to need a device to connect to it, right? It's either going to be your PC or it's going to be your, your smartphone or your cell phone. And I think that the smartphone and the cell phone are still nowhere near where they need to be in terms of functionality and capability that they're going to actually compete as a, as a real platform to the PC. So I still think the PC is a great um, tool, and it will continue to grow, and then you know, who's going to benefit from it? I mean, that's a whole other question. I think, and we could talk about that, you know, for, that's a whole other discussion, but I don't think it's an either-or, I guess is what I'm trying to say. I, I think that people have their, what I call their, you know, their, their toolboxes, right? And you, and you basically figure out what tool uh, makes sense for what task you're, 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 you're facing. And so, you know, if I'm, if I'm on the road and I want to download a song, I'm not going to break out my PC. I'm going to probably, you know, open my, you know, my iPhone or my cell phone and I'm going to download it onto the cell phone, and, and vice versa. You know, when I'm in in an office, you know, I'm I'm not going to I don't have to like pick up my cell phone to uh, to, to to send a text message. I can even just as easily send an uh, an email or 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 an instant message on my computer. So I think all these things can kind of coexist together and and. Um, and, and, you know, depending on what you want to do, then, you know, you'll, you'll make that decision. Well, Spencer, thanks for taking the time to do this. Thank you. It's my pleasure. And I'll look forward to seeing you in next week. Absolutely. Big, big Monday. Okay. So long. Okay. Take care. You've been listening to On the Record Online with Eric Schwartzman, where reporters and journalists go on the record about how they use the web to cover the news. For the latest trends, tips, and tactics on how the web impacts corporate reputations, subscribe to our RSS news feed or visit us online at www.ipressroom.com.